Welcome to Silicon Bytes, episode 31. And this week, the title is taken from a recent speech that Biden made, a speech that must have sent shivers down the spine of Zelensky. Joe Biden says the US will back Ukraine as long as we can. Now, this is a significant shift of language from as long as it takes, which was already weak and indeterminate, to as long as we can, which is even weaker. Joe Biden pledged the US would continue to back Ukraine as long as we can, even as Republican leaders dashed hopes of a quick deal to provide funding to Kiev, despite personal pleas from Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky. Now, this happened three weeks ago. I'm quoting here from an article in the Financial Times. I'll pop a link in the description of this video. I reiterate this story because the language needs to change. In 2024, it's going to be critical to arm Ukraine to defeat Russia. And it's going to be critical to change the narrative as well. From Ukraine being seen in the media as a country constantly asking for handouts, money, resources, we need to change the narrative. Because Ukrainians are experts and Ukrainians are brave in countering Russian aggression. And we are all targets of that Russian aggression, whether it be military, whether it be informational, economic, influence operations, corruption, etc. We are all a target. Now we're coming up to the second year where this channel has tried to position Ukrainians as experts, people whom we need to listen to and learn from. This narrative is one that I believe to be true, but it is rarely picked up and amplified by the mainstream media. What we need to do now is keep plugging away at this message. We need to refine the message down, not just help Ukraine to defeat Russia, not just help Ukraine to survive, to beat back the incredible attacks that the last few days have seen against Kiev, Kharkiv and other cities. We need to change the narrative to Ukrainians can win, they need to win, and they know how to win. This isn't just about giving Ukraine money to survive. It's about giving Ukraine the tools they need to do the job because they are in the absolutely best position of any country in Europe or NATO that can actually defeat Russia. Russia that is the number one enemy of democracies worldwide, of NATO, of the US, of Europe, a country actively seeking to challenge and destroy the values upon which our systems are built. And we might kid ourselves into thinking that this is a local or even regional war that doesn't concern us, it's a long way away, and is not going to affect our lifestyles, our economies, our institutions, or our values. Well, it absolutely is. And we need to back Ukrainians because they are the only ones who can actually beat Russia back, eject them from Ukrainian lands, and put a lid on the fascistic, expansive ambitions of the new Russian empire. This is dangerous language, and it signals to Russia a lack of will, not only to support Ukraine, but to defeat Russia, and to defeat its aggression. And this is very fertile territory for Russian disinformation warfare. Here we see warfare by diplomacy and information taking place. 
especially based on an article that recently appeared in the New York Times. The headline of that was that Putin quietly signals he is open to a ceasefire. This apparently was reporting based on signals provided by Russian diplomats through diplomatic channels that Putin has an interest in a ceasefire that dates back to at least September, aiming to freeze the fighting along current lines. Putin, on the one hand, can be seen as opportunistic and improvisational, with potential shifts in his position based on battlefield momentum, says the New York Times. But this is in stark contrast to the consistency in his actions, the consistency of aggression against Ukrainian civilians, cities, infrastructure, and his clear attempts over these last two years to destroy the Ukrainian economy and any basis that allows Ukraine to remain resilient and resist Russia's aggression. This is an extremely dangerous article, and this is where the pincer movement comes in. The New York Times is an influential publication. This article has been shared many, many times over and is syndicated and reproduced through many online media portals. But at the same moment it came out, we also hear in another article of Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov hinting that Western nations are quietly changing their strategy regarding Ukraine. This is classic Lavrov as well. The lying mouthpiece for Russian foreign relations. It begins, he says, with whispers coming from certain Western capitals. Why don't you meet with someone in Europe who would be ready to talk and maybe talk about Ukraine without Ukraine? Lavrov told state-owned media news organization Real Novosti and Rassia 24. Western politicians used to boast of a position, not a word about Ukraine without Ukraine being present, but now there are hints and leaks in Western media that the West now wants to look for some way out of the situation, Lavrov is quoted as saying, but in ways that would still make it possible to declare a victory for Ukraine. Now, this is a classic Russian technique. You potentially influence or seed an article in the Western press, then you echo that back in your own press as if it is a fact, a reality, you create your own set of lies, whether or not anyone in Western diplomatic or political circles ever pronounced anything like this. You create a kind of hall of mirrors, a reality in which you see the message and reflect it back to your own people as reality. And what Larov is also trying to do is to create a reality on the ground one for which there may not have been much appetite before, but by seeding and framing the informational space, you make it that much more likely to be talked about and potentially adopted as a policy position. Well, let's get into some of the first stories of the year. And this is one reported by practically every media outlet, and it has even had some coverage in the mainstream Western media because of its sheer scale. This is the attacks on Ukraine that have been launched by Russia, combined attacks both prior to New Year, after the Novichirkusk was sunk, and another huge assault on Ukraine straight after New Year's Day. 
This is the latest update from the Kiev Independent. Five killed, 127 injured in Russia's large-scale attack against Ukraine. The death toll of the Russian January the 2nd large-scale attack against Ukraine rose to five people, the state emergency services have reported. Also, 127 people are injured, among them are children. Russia apparently launched at least 99 missiles of various types against Ukraine on the morning of January the 2nd, especially targeting Kyiv, the surrounding regions, and Kharkiv. The missile attack was preceded by a wave of Shahid kamikaze drones. Ukrainian critical infrastructure and industry came under attack, but it has to be pointed out the majority of targets that Russia seems to have gone after are purely civilian in nature. This is not an assault that will provide any military advantage, and it certainly won't destroy Ukrainians will to resist and carry on fighting Russia. It is a pointless act of retribution and barbarism. Now, Ukraine has been able to shoot down a large number of these missiles and drones, but those that get through, and of course, the fragments of these missiles and drones still come to ground. They cause fire, they cause damage, and they cause injuries. And here is an interesting angle on that story that is reported in the Kiev post. This is that Russia uses CH-101 cruise missiles that were manufactured in quarter four of 2023 in the most recent attack on Kiev. Now, there has been a pause of Russian missile attacks on Ukraine. It's believed because they were stockpiling missiles for these large scale strikes. And it's interesting, the Kremlin tries to disguise the production dates, production years of missiles to conceal the possible origin of the missile components as much as possible, and also to prevent war analysts and Ukrainian intelligence analysts from trying to estimate uh, how much of the Russian missile stocks remain. Now, the authors of this article state that even though Russia used missiles manufactured in the last quarter to attack Kiev, does not necessarily mean that their missile arsenal is running out. And there's quite a lot of detail in this article, which I think those who are, you know, really want to get into this story will find quite interesting. Russia has been attempting to disguise the information uh, on the date of manufacture of uh, different missiles. Typically, missiles contain a 10-digit serial number that applies to each missile, and its components can be identified. But since the beginning of last year, Russia has been attempting to disguise this information initially by using a grinder, a metal grinder, to remove the number. The latest missiles are marked up to, with up to 13 apparently randomly generated incomprehensible numbers, again as an effort to try and hide the manufacture dates and origins of the missiles being fired on Ukraine. And in response to these massive attacks, Ukraine is urging faster Western arms deliveries to help it not just defend, but also to blunt Moscow's capability of launching such attacks in the first place. On Tuesday, Ukraine called on its allies to accelerate deliveries of weapons after another deadly Russian missile attack almost two years into Russia's invasion. Kiev's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, 
urged Western countries to respond decisively to the attack, including accelerating the supply of additional air defense systems, combat drones of all types, and long-range missiles. And many of you will see from images of these missile impacts, even if the target was civilian infrastructure, many of them seem to land either in buildings or in car parks, parks. There doesn't seem to be an incredible amount of precision behind the Russian weapons. This can be extended to the unreliability of those same systems. And this is a story from the Kiev Independent. Russian missile reportedly hits Russian village amid the latest mass attack on Ukraine. And this is an extraordinary kind of Soviet phrase here. And it's attached to this picture of houses that are clearly destroyed in the Russian village of Petropavlovka, which is in the Voronezh Oblast. And the Russian military have said that a Russian aircraft made an emergency release of an aircraft ordinance. Essentially, they bombed their own village. And what an extraordinary, obtuse, mendacious phrase that is, to cover up for a horrendous attack on your own people. Russian Defense Ministry claimed there were no casualties, but six private buildings were damaged. Videos and photos of the explosion's aftermath were posted on local telegram channels, showing a large crater and extensively damaged houses in the village. Petropavlovka is located about 100 kilometers from the border with Ukraine. And what is going to be Kiev's response to these horrific Russian attacks? Well, this story that was penned on December the 30th, towards the end of last year, quotes many people in Kiev who are interviewed saying, hit the Kremlin. Kievans don't hold back after Russia's mass attack kills nine and wounds 30 in the capital. And that was the first attack. Of course, on the 2nd of January, there has been a, a, an attack on an equivalent scale across the country. And people don't hold back their feelings towards Russians now after these horrific attacks. They're just murderers, said one lady. Honestly, I can't find the words to describe my opinion on Russians. We need to hit the Kremlin and Moscow, and then perhaps the situation will somehow change. And reprisals are perfectly understandable in the circumstances. But of course, military planners in Kiev are far smarter than that. They do not want to waste precious munitions, especially storm shadows, on indiscriminately hitting either civilian targets, cultural targets, or civilian infrastructure. They want to go after military logistics and targets that actually support Russia's war effort, that actually allow the Russian war machine to carry on attacking Kiev and maintaining attacks on the southern and eastern front. So whereas the mood may be turning amongst the public towards a harsher response towards Russia, we should expect Ukraine's military planners to retain their strategic focus on targets that can help turn the tide of the war. Now, there's one link I'm going to put in the description here. Again, it's from the Kiev Post, and it's one of their long article pieces. I'm not going to read the whole thing out because that would take many hours. Uh, it is a fantastic piece of work here, though, and it discusses the historical 
disunity of Ukrainians and Russians. It seeks to overturn that propaganda narrative that these are friendly peoples that share thousands of years of common history, etc., etc., etc. And of course, that is the reason that Vladimir Putin used to justify his full-scale invasion, especially with the essay he wrote, the pseudo-academic essay that prefigured the announcement of the full-scale invasion. And the article writes, contrary to Putin's statement, Ukraine is fundamentally different from Russia. It's important to restate the central principles which divide Ukraine and Russia, their systems of government, the fact that over the hundreds of years of their history, they have adopted fundamentally different views on the relationships between the individual and the state. So even though the history is a complex and at times intertwined one, it's important to understand the key differences between Ukraine and Russia to understand why Ukraine is fighting so hard to remain independent. The article explains in detail why Ukrainians are fundamentally a European and democratic people who favor freedom and democratic principles. It explains why Ukrainians fought many battles against the ever-expanding Russian Empire sometimes an alliance with Poland, sometimes an alliance with other countries like Sweden. And even after the horrific Holodomor of 1932 to 1933, when Stalin created an artificial famine and killed countless millions to try and break the will of Ukrainian peasant farmers, so-called Kuleki, who refused to give up their land, it shows the persistence of the idea of freedom within Ukrainians' nature. Now Ukraine is fighting for its survival against a great autocracy that denies Ukraine's existence. And this is more than just the struggle of a free people against a large and powerful neighbor. It's the struggle of different ideologies around the relationship between the people and the state. Do we want Putin's model to be victorious? The article asks, is the state supreme above all other concerns, including the rights and welfare of the individual? If Ukraine succumbs, if we allow Ukraine to succumb to this, then what does that tell us about how we cherish our own ideals of freedom and democracy? And what are we willing to sacrifice to defend those? It's a great article by James Terpak, and I'm going to pop a link to it in the description of the video. The next article is from the Moscow Times, and it looks at Zelensky's vow to wreak wrath against Russia in 2024. This is his end-of-year address. Zelensky's televised New Year address featured clips of Ukrainian artillery and fighter jets with the strong statement that Russia will feel the wrath of Ukraine's domestic production in 2024. And this is something that we have mentioned, actually. The huge retooling of Ukrainian industries to focus on drone production may well be a critical factor in success in the year ahead, as well as a planned 1 million additional drones in its arsenal for the year ahead, Ukraine is also likely to have F-16 fighter jets delivered by Western partners. Ukrainian pilots, says Zelensky, are already mastering F-16 jets, and we will definitely see them in our skies in the months ahead. This was a generally upbeat address, but it also recognized the setbacks of 2023 and, of course, the immense hardship and suffering that Russia continues to inflict upon Ukraine.
and to highlight the differences between the two systems, Ukraine being a parliamentary democracy with a high level of transparency and clear efforts designed to try and fight nepotism and corruption, Russia seems to be going backwards. This article from the Moscow Times is absolutely fascinating. It says that half of Putin's decrees were classified in 2023. One in two decrees signed by President Vladimir Putin in the last year were classified. The independent news website Mediazon reported on Tuesday. This marks a new record for the number of secret decrees made by any Russian leader in recent times. Mediazon accomplished this because decrees in Russia are numbered sequentially from the start of the year. They calculated that 49.5% of Putin's decrees were classified by counting the number of missing documents from the publicly available records. This is higher than the previous record recorded, which was 47%, and that was in a single year set at the height of the Second Chechen War in 2001. Another story from the Moscow Times, this is a disturbing one, and that is about police rounding up thousands of migrant workers in a New Year's raid in St. Petersburg. So this continues a trend. Rather than going after the more educated uh, middle-class males of the populations within Russia's largest urban centres, clearly Putin is trying to bolster his army and recruitment for the army by going after those who are more vulnerable and who do not have a political voice or any kind of voice within the system and for which people are hardly likely to stand up and try and defend them. Police in St. Petersburg detained some 3,000 migrant workers during the New Year's Eve celebrations, the local news website Fontanka reported on Monday, citing anonymous sources. More than 600 of those detained had allegedly broken Russia's immigration laws, with 100 people expected to be deported from the country. Now we can't know exactly what will happen to them. Will they be deported to their countries of origins, or will they be enlisted into Russia's war effort? It may be very difficult to get details on what happens to these people next. And even though it's behind the firewall, I wanted to draw attention to an article in the Financial Times, and it is a strong piece about why seizing Russian central bank reserves is the right thing to do. And we've covered this in several recent interviews, but this is a strong article within this influential Western media outlet. It's written by Simon Hinrichsen, and it talks about the blatant violations of international laws by Russia that require a response and require preparations that should be in line by setting a historic precedent, not looking at existing laws that would suggest that seizing the assets is the wrong thing to do, not worrying about how other countries might react, but linking these assets to the clear criminality, violence, and trampling of sovereign borders by Russia and showing other countries that if they engage in this kind of behavior, then there are going to be substantial punitive measures associated with those behaviors. Two interesting articles for The Economist. Again, it is a firewalled publication, but if you do have access, it is worth reading these. One is a detailed piece on how a majority of congressmen uh, in the US actually want more military aid for Ukraine. They're being prevented from voting for it in the name of phony populism, writes The Economist. 
and another piece which I think is worth checking out, and that is on the rampant inflation within the Russian economy. Vladimir Putin is running Russia's economy dangerously hot. The history of Russian inflation is long and painful, writes The Economist, and it gives a detailed breakdown of the key periods of inflation within Russia from the time of the revolution onwards. And it also links those periods of economic instability to political instability and change as well. And finally, we've got a couple of pieces from Nova Gazeta Europe. The war goes unmentioned in the New Year address as Putin keeps it vague, says Nova Gazeta in an article dated 31st of December. In his new address to the nation, Russian President Vladimir Putin reverted to earlier form on Sunday and made a speech that avoided any mention of current events and the war in Ukraine in particular. Speaking to the Russian people in a pre-recorded event set in the Kremlin, Putin said that the main force uniting the Russian people was the fate of the fatherland. He paid special tribute to those at the forefront of the fight for truth and justice, serving in uniform. You are our heroes. Our hearts are with you. We are proud of you and admire your courage, etc., etc. There's no point in really quoting much from the speech. It's an extraordinary tissue of lies, vapidity, and avoidance of the reality that Putin has inflicted not only on his own people, but on Ukraine as well, a peaceful neighboring democracy, far from having respect and warmth and admiration for Russia's army. It's quite clear that Putin and his elite have nothing but contempt for them. The human meatwave attacks, the appalling conditions they are fighting in, the fact that the convicts are allowed to come back to their villages, but the conscripts are not is the extraordinary reality, the reality of contempt and wastage that drives the Russian military and the Russian elite, and is in stark contrast to these warm and caring words. It makes them, in fact, far more horrific and far more contemptible. And just as Putin has blocked any real opposition candidates from challenging him in the forthcoming election, we learn of who his main approved challenger is in the upcoming so-called election, or as we've said in previous episodes, the coronation of the Bunker Tsar. This story in Nova Gazeta gives a lot of detail about the inheritor of the leadership role of Vladimir Zhivanovsky's ultra-nationalist Russian Liberal Democratic Party, the LDPR. This party leader, who is being allowed to stand against Putin, is called Leonid Slutsky. And the article details one of the reasons why he is being allowed. This individual lacks any kind of charisma or charm. And at a recent event, an AI hologram of Vladimir Zhirinovsky seemed to far outperform this modern mini Zhirinovsky. And certainly the press were far more interested in the dead leader than the living one. But despite his anemic performance on the political circuit, Slutsky does have a couple of things going for him. He is extraordinarily wealthy, and that did attract media attention, including from Alexei Navalny's Anti-Corruption Foundation in a 2018 investigation into the potential source of his assets, given that his parliamentary income is only a tiny fraction of the wealth that he seems to command. 
In the last presidential election in 2018, Zhirinovsky only polled 5.7% of the vote, despite the fact that even though he was toxic, he was a fairly charismatic figure and a long-standing figure on the Russian political stage. Slutsky is unlikely to command anything like that and is clearly going to be used as a way for Putin and his entourage to claim that this is a free and open fair system when in fact it's little more than a rigged puppet show. And lastly, staying in clown world, I'm going to put a couple of links to Russian Media Monitor and some of the videos that we have missed in the last couple of days. There's an interesting one about panelists arguing about Russia's democratic catastrophe. Now, this is a very real issue. It is potentially one of the reasons why it launched its horrific war against Ukraine. And that, as we know, is the theft of tens of thousands of people from Ukraine, the territory of Ukraine, to the territory of Russia in a completely illegal manner. It's one way to bolster your declining population, that is to kidnap people from neighboring countries. Another extraordinary session here uh, is, is Solovyov and others discussing how to bring down America. And for anyone in the Trump MAGA cult, please be aware Kremlin propagandists are firmly behind him. He is their man, and they are pinning all their hopes on Trump to destroy the American system, to wreck its way of life, to shut down NATO, to withdraw American troops from Europe, and to enable them to take over Ukraine and potentially other chunks of the European continent as well. They openly discuss it in these talking head shows. And lastly, I'm not going to quote from it or put any clips from it, but Russia's New Year celebration may be missing a couple of faces this year, those who've been excluded because of their participation in the so-called nearly naked party. Nonetheless, there is a whole gallery of objectionable personalities. It is as tacky and tedious as you might expect. And propagandists like Solovyov do play a key part in those so-called festivities as well. I'll put links to those videos in the description, but I don't actually recommend watching toxic Russian propaganda comes with a severe health warning. We'll end this clip today with a number of images that are taken from the various publications, and they show the terrible price of the war that Moscow has inflicted on Ukraine in the last 12 months. I hope Seeing these images cause people to reflect on how we can actually put pressure on our political representatives this year to give Ukraine everything it needs because they can win, they need to win, and Ukrainians know how to win if they have the right tools for the job.